Let's be cheerful and point out that today is the first full day of summer for 2023. Yay, it is summer. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Laura Johnston. Lots of news to talk about. Let's begin. Layla, Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose is one of the chief forces behind the move to crush our democracy and end majority rule on the Ohio Constitution. And now we learn that it was his big mistake that has forced elections chiefs across the state into panic mode to get ready for the special August election. I'm having a hard time seeing this as the accident they claim it is. (laughs) How did he screw up? Yes, the elections officials are scrambling to reprint ballots with these looming deadlines. So here's what happened. On, On June 12th, the Ohio Supreme Court ordered the summary language for issue one to be rewritten. And state officials approved rewritten language the very next day. But LaRose's office provided written instructions to county elections officials that included an incorrect version of the new language. In an email Tuesday to elections board's officials, LaRose's director of elections, Chris Burnett, attributed this mistake to a transcription error. Uh, LaRose's office issued the correct ballot language and and said the state will cover any extra costs incurred by elections officials as a result of this mistake. They said steps are being taken to address whatever breakdown (laughs) happened internally that led to it. But this is a costly error. It could cost the state hundreds of thousands of dollars because elections boards have already printed their ballots, which have to be destroyed and redone. And some have even programmed and tested their voting machines. And that has to be redone. Tomorrow is the deadline for for elections officials to mail absentee ballots to military members and overseas voters because early voting begins July 11th. But but let's face it, a transcription error, that's where I'm listening to a recording and I type the wrong word. (laughs) This is completely wrong language. This is the language he fought for. He wrote the original language. He wanted the original language. The state Supreme Court said, no, it's not good. It's an error. Fix it. And then he sends out the original language and calls it a transcription error. How is that a transcription error? By, By what definition is that a transcription error? This is bogus. The thing is, too. It sets up the possibility of mistakes that people will then use to challenge the election if it goes against the way he wants it to go. What what if some elections board in the panic of this mixes up the ballots and Mm. gets them wrong anyway because they're leaving so little time? It's all a product of this rushed push to get this on the August election to block abortion. But look. I, we're a news outlet. We make mistakes every day. We had a cut line on a, on a photo in a story yesterday that was not the right cut line. But there's degrees of mistakes, right? <laughs> Getting the ballot language wrong on a pivotal moment in Ohio history ranks way up there in terms of mistakes. This is his job. He had one job. I couldn't agree more. I mean, hopefully in Cuyahoga County, this is just going to be a minor problem because... I mean, on one hand, they have to get their ballots retranslated into Spanish since that's a requirement here. But on the other hand, there's only one issue on the ballot because they outlawed August elections before they did this. So the reprint isn't isn't as extensive as it as it could be. But okay, so he wants to run for the U.S. Senate. So let's review his qualifications. He's a complete hypocrite because of what he's doing with August elections. (laughs) He's a complete hypocrite because he came out against 
going to 88 counties because that makes it very hard for the citizens to do anything. But now he's for it. He, he wants to crush democracy. And on top of all that, he's incompetent. Make a great U.S. senator. Yeah. In this era, I think he checks the boxes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a debacle. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Wednesday saw a decent debate about issue one down in Columbus. Lisa, who were the debaters and what points did they make? I think the points that they made are ones that we've already talked about extensively here on the podcast, but this was hosted by the Columbus Metropolitan Club. Arguing for state issue one was uh, Republican Senator Rob McCauley from Northwest Ohio. He also helped write the official pro-argument that will appear in uh, you know advertising for this. Against was Mike Curtin, a former Democratic state lawmaker and former Columbus dispatch editor. So McCauley said that uh, voters amending the Constitution shouldn't be as easy as proposing a law change. He says it deserves, using the word, elevated protection. It needs to be widely supported to support the danger of factions that we're seeing across the country. And he says that, you know, that these are susceptible to special interests, pointing to the 2009 casino gambling law. Curtin responded that it's pretty galling for the GOP to describe state issue one as defeating out-of-state interests because they've been taking money from out-of-state interests. How dare they, he said. It offends me. And then Macaulay went on to say that the idea had bipartisan support in the past. And he also talked about the 88-county signature requirement. He says that ensures only amendments with broad support will make the ballot. So I'm Curtin arguing against it. He said only 19 of 78 voter amendments were approved since 1912. Only 11 got 60% of the vote. And he said short-sighted GOP lawmakers want to kneecap citizens' check on the legislature and said that special interests are bankrolling these in state after state because the legislatures are more pliable than voters. He says they want to take away your right to hold the legislature accountable. And he said of the 88 county signature requirement, he said that would effectively allow one county to veto something that the other 87 counties want and it would make it the toughest requirements in the nation. Yeah, the one thing Curtin didn't say should have is, look, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce is for it, so that means you should be against it automatically, <laughs> that interest. The, the, the one thing we haven't really talked about is the idea that it should be harder to change the Constitution than to change a state law. That's actually a valid argument, but the answer isn't to make it even more difficult to change the Constitution. It should be to make it somewhat easier for citizens to put state law challenges on the ballot that would that would lead citizen initiatives to go in that direction more than they go in the amendment direction there's nothing that says that those two can't be far apart as standards but you don't have to make it harder for one you can make it easier mm -hmm. for the other um I did, want, I did want to make a point because we asked them about, you know, abortion's role in this special election. And Macaulay says, well, you know, the, the four group includes business people with their own reasons for defeating state issue one unrelated to abortion. But this is what he said. He said, we've been talking about this for years. The <laughs> August election was the only way to make it happen. Uh, yeah, the only way to make it happen in black abortion. When, when you read that story, Andrew Twice did a nice job on it. The argument arguments for 
are so ridiculously hollow that when you stand them up against the meat-based arguments of people like Mike Curtin, who wrote a great op-ed for us on this a few months ago, it, it, there's just no comparison. I mean, <laughs> there's all the substance on the side of kill this stupid idea, and the, the people pushing it have nothing. And so in a debate like this, it's really quite clear where people should go. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talk a lot about the Cuyahoga County Jail, and there was a public hearing this week on the proposal to build a new county jail out in Garfield Heights. Laura, who are the people that showed up, and what did they have to say about Chris Ronane's proposal? Well, a whole lot of people showed up. Caitlin Durbin tweeted out a picture that showed a pretty good crowd that uh, that attended, about 75 people at the council meeting. And both, basically, they don't want to build a new jail. They don't want to spend three quarters of a billion dollars on a new building in Garfield Heights. What they said is you need to fix this jail and this system. So not just the building, but you need to make sure that we have fewer people going to jail. You need to fix the criminal justice system and not you know, build a 1900 bed facility, which they think then are going to try to just fill up rather than use all of the tools that they've been talking about for a very long time to reduce the jail population. Things like the uh, central booking and the diversion center, which haven't gotten a lot of use. They think those need to be implemented and then, you know, not spend all of this money on a big building. We're already in the crappy jail where they have really horrible food. Costs hundred and sixty-five dollars a day to house an inmate. Yeah, look, I get where they're coming from. It's a lot of money to spend on a jail. If we would have kept up the old jail and done things, it might have lasted longer. But there is kind of a human decency element here. I'm a little bit surprised that this group wasn't seeing that. You were going to have to put people into a jail. There's no way that you can do all sorts of diversion to end the need for a jail. And our jail is terrible. We've just been talking in recent weeks about the disaster that the food is. The, the guards think there might be a riot. So so I was surprised at the, at the way it went. I also was surprised at the way Chris Renane seemed to just wash his hands of the whole thing. Right. You know, this is his proposal. He, he's put a lot of work into it. But when he was asked about it, he goes, well, it's up to the council. <laughs> I, I believe the word that Caitlin used was punted. Yeah. <laughs> that is in the council's hands now. But yeah, who put it in the council's hand? That would be Chris Ronane. I don't think these are one or the other. Like, I don't think anyone would argue we shouldn't be using the the diversion center. We're spending a whole, you know, a whole lot of time organizing and money building. And it's just not being used maybe because people aren't comfortable with it and the police departments aren't using it as not enough. These things need to work in tandem. I don't think we want to fill up a jail. I, I don't know that that's anyone's goal, but I agree with these folks that, you know, just putting people in jail is not the answer. Well, and you do want a county executive that hears them. And he said, I've listened to you, but then he washed his hands. Instead of saying, look, you, you made some good points. Part of my plan is to put a diversion center on this property. Let me go back, talk to the council. Let's figure out if we can do some more work to, to make that happen and, 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 and argue forcefully for his proposal. He just, oh, yeah, well, it's not on me. It's on them. We'll, we'll see what they do. Well, not the kind of bold leadership we're looking for, Lisa. Yeah, I think that these people that are against a new jail need to tour the current jail. And I'm not sure they've been keeping up with stories that we've reported about the food and, and, and the, the problems that the guards have and, and things falling apart. They have to machine the parts to fix the jail. So, you know, yeah, I, it's, it seems like a weird argument to me. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and really, not only tour the jail, they should sample the food. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Who is the Clevelander who is playing an important role providing information about the submersible that is missing somewhere in the vicinity of the sunken Titanic? Layla, today is the day that's projected mm. to be when oxygen runs out. So this has become a serious crisis as of now. Yes, I, I had hoped there would be a headline today saying they found them, but uh, not so. So the, the, the local science journalist or, or from Shaker Heights is David Pogue, graduated from Shaker Heights High School. He's, he's actually been on board this submersible called the Titan, and he did a segment on it for CBS's Sunday morning show last year. He told reporter Pete Krause that he has been in high demand this week, getting calls from journalists around the globe. He's done about 40 TV interviews in two days, and it's burning him out, it sounds like. But his trip to reach the Titanic aboard the Titan was was cut very short at a depth of just 37 feet (laughs) due to some minor complications. But he said that he spent some days at sea with this crew preparing for that ride. And they operate it like it's a rocket launch. But even now, he questions if what he witnessed was what he described as a fly-by-night, jerry-rigged operation that was a recipe for disaster. For example, he said the Titan is piloted using a video game controller, and some of the ballast is made up of old, rusty construction pipes. He said, while inside, lights were bought off of camperworld.com, and only 17 of the 18 bolts that secured the vessel were fastened because one of them at the top, he was told, isn't necessary. But apparently the vital portion of this craft, the, the pressure vessel, was developed in, conjun- in conjunction with Boeing uh, you know, at NASA and, and University of Washington. So hopefully that means that the submersible is at least intact and can hopefully hang in uh, until help arrives. There's an entire uh, uh, advisory group on submersibles that that sets standards and discusses it. And they, every member came out and wrote things to this company saying, you need to put this vessel through the testing. And the company refused. They're saying, no, we're innovative and and your systems for testing are for old technology. And it would take years for you to come around to what we're doing that's so innovative. And so this did not go through mm. any testing standards. Pogue is lucky that he had to come up after 37 feet. You want to jerry-rig something to float on the top of the water, build a kayak out of, you know, wing nuts, fine. But this is going more than two miles down. And the weight of the column of water on top of you when you're two miles down just crushes you. I know. I know. This is a terrifying story to contemplate. I can't imagine what it would be like to be on board this thing right now. And have they lost power completely? Are they in darkness? And is it frigid down there? And the air dwind, the oxygen dwindling. I, it's just a terrifying prospect. I know everyone kind of rolls their eyes and they're like, oh, well, they spent $250,000 on, you know, rich people do that deserved it. I mean, it's awful. <laughs> this is an awful situation. And uh, I don't yeah, know. And really at this point, unless it's floating, um, even if they find it, they don't really have the means to pull it back up from the depths. Right, anyway, right. Pete said uh, David Pogue was great. I didn't think we'd get him. I sent a note out yesterday morning saying, hey, we got a local guy. He's the son of Dick Pogue, well-known lawyer, philanthropist in town. And he called him right back because it was us. It's like, I'm talking to you guys. I'm talking to somebody else, but I'm pretty much done. So thank you, David Pogue. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
What is elevated access and how might it play into abortion in Ohio and the way the state treats the transgender community? Lisa? Elevated Access is a nonprofit network of volunteer pilots that fly people needing reproductive or gender-affirming care across state lines if they cannot get it in their home state. This began in June of last year. The flights are free, and patients remain anonymous if they choose to do so. So one of the pilots is flying with Elevated Access is 69-year-old Cleveland Clinic doctor Howard Epstein. He's a veteran pilot, and he said that the people we serve, their freedoms have been taken away. I'm willing to put myself on the line to protect that freedom and thank God for people like him. Uh, One person that we talked to, uh, 23-year-old Nicholas Welker, he said he came out as transgender in 2021 and he wished he'd known of elevated access because appointments for testosterone injections were really hard to get and, and it was just hard to access care. And he says, I hope care doesn't get even harder to access. So uh, because this is a volunteer volunteer group, you know, they do need donations to defray their flight costs. Pilots currently pay all the costs for these flights. Um, and you can, you know, help them out at elevatedaccess.org. And Epstein says that he wants patients to know that they shouldn't be afraid of this service. They're, you know, they're, they're kept secret and, and they're going to, it's a safe way to travel to get their care. What I thought was interesting is that the pilots don't even know the identities of the people who are flying with them or why they're flying, because you can see if the state legislature sees this, they'll try and outlaw it. They'll say you can't use planes to transport people out of state for abortion. But if the pilots can legitimately say, I don't know why they were flying out of state. I don't Mm -hmm. even know who they are it's harder to regulate. I guess you could pass a law saying you must have the passengers' names and have them state their reasons for flying or something. But uh, this seems like a tactic to thwart an overly aggressive legislature. Absolutely. And, you know, the the spokeswoman that we talked to is anonymous for EA. They call her Fiona. She's the director of kindness at EA. So anonymity is the best way to protect everybody's identity. Great story by Molly Walsh. Check it out. It's on cleveland.com and you're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Ohio about to lose a lot of child care money? And if so, how many children might lose their child care spots? Laura, this kind of bomb drops in the middle of a series you're coordinating on the need to expand child care. And here we could have a serious retrenchment. Yeah, this is I hadn't heard of this term before, the, the child care cliff. And the Century Foundation released a big report yesterday looking at this cliff that we're all going to drop off of, fall off of in September because of ARPA money that's going to run out. And so this is federal money um, that went all through the states, $40 billion to help child care facilities pay wages, lower tuition, and expand services during the pandemic. Because something like um, 10% of child care facilities in the country actually closed for good during the pandemic. They just couldn't make it work anymore. One, the one that my kids graduated from, gone. It was at a church and they just decided it wasn't feasible. It was really hard to have those lower ratios and still have an, you know, if people could afford to send their kids. So they helped out. People needed it. And it wasn't anything transformational. They gave like an extra dollar an hour bonus to workers just to try to make up some of the pay. But this is all about to end. And that could mean that like hundreds of thousands of kids, actually 3.2 million kids across the United States could 
be losing spots in childcare. And in Ohio, we're talking about an estimated 2,100 childcare programs that could close. 135,000 kids would lose access because of this end. And we all know the state legislature is not looking to make up any of this money. This has profound economic development implications. I mean, you're talking about a lot of jobs, a lot of income, a lot of income taxes. You would think that our legislature would look at it just from that perspective and think maybe we should do something about it. And that's what I've tried to do with this child care series, right? A a bunch of years ago, we had a series called The First 5,000 Days, which looked at early childhood education and how important it was for kids to have a safe, secure educational grounding in their lives just for their brain synapses to fire the right way so these kids could grow up to be successful. And all of that is still true. And it's very, very important that we give these kids the best start in life that we can. But I'm looking at this from an economic point of view because in the pandemic, it became abundantly clear to everyone that we need childcare in order to function. A lot of, I mean, I I don't want to be sexist about this, but a lot of dads saw what what it was like when they had to stay home and work while their kids were at work, were at home. And I think everybody recognized this as like an actual problem. And so we've, we've had stories about how beneficial it can be for the economy, because if you free up childcare, then more women, and it usually is the women can go to work. So if we're talking about all of these kids not going to childcare, we're talking about parents losing their jobs, cutting back on their jobs, working less. And Ohio would lose $9.7 million in state income tax alone. And that's just 6,300 childcare jobs. Those people who work in childcare industry, they pay taxes. And we're already talking about the fewest number of childcare workers since 1999. So I don't know why this is not a dollar and cents issue to our legislators that just say it makes financial sense, aside from all of the wonderful benefits for humanity that providing childcare creates. Yeah, I just, I can't believe the timing of this coming in the middle of this series. You know, one problem with this series is we have a very strong Northeast Ohio audience uh, and, and cover a good bit of the state, but I think a lot of people aren't getting this message. And I wonder if there are ways, you know, maybe we call Spectrum News or somebody and say, hey, do you want to work together on this? Because... It would be good to spread this. If the whole state sees it, maybe you could get past Matt Huffman's ridiculous intransigence on it. Yeah. I mean, just to, to put it out of there again, the median wage for an Ohio child care worker is $12 and 52 cents an hour. Like these people are not paid enough. And, and the way that the system works, it's not even a system. It's just total patchwork. It's, it relies on all these different funding sources and, and a big bottom's going to drop out. All right. You're listening to today in Ohio. Layla, what are some thoughts offered Tuesday for using the abandoned subway under the Veterans Memorial Bridge? I'm still kind of astounded that you've had more than a half century of this primo thing abandoned. Right, right. This is a 96-foot-tall, 3,000-foot-long space that's been closed off since 1954. That's when the streetcar service was discontinued. It will open to the public to tour the space on Friday and Saturday connecting Detroit and Spirit Avenues over the Cuyahoga River Valley. Chris Renane was among the officials showing off the space to reporters this week, and he said he thinks that it naturally lends itself to be a great cycling throughway and a pedestrian promenade. He said it could also be a great artist campus where 
space could be given to permanent and temporary art exhibits. But when the public gets a chance to see it, Ronane wants them to dream big and submit their ideas for the future of this space. They'll, they're going to be hosting a community conversation about the bridge to jumpstart this brainstorming on Friday from 5 to 8 p.m. The main entrance for those events are go- is going to be at 2433 Superior Viaduct. That's at the northeast corner of the West 25th Street and Detroit Avenue intersections. Dinner is going to be available on a first-come, first-served basis for people who attend. And then free self-guided tours will be available from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. on Saturday. And there's going to be food trucks and live entertainment and educational tables during the event. It's a nice way to to get people thinking about the space and to engage the public on what to do. I just am surprised that for decades it wasn't used. Everybody's fascinated to see the huge ships, the huge freighters going along the river. And this is a vantage point you can't get. You'd be right on top of them looking down. I would have thought this would have been a tourist attraction. I think most cities would have seen it that way. Let's really use this to to pump up the visits to our, our waterfront. But for decades, it was just empty I guess right they just they've had just a handful of dates like this where you could tour the bridge and on each of those occasions they would see thousands I mean in, on one they said 17,000 people came through to see it uh, so clearly there's an appetite for this and as Ronane said as the the you know the river the riverfront is being revitalized this is the perfect opportunity to also reimagine this space. Yeah, it's been a failure of civic vision, and uh, kudos to Chris Ronane for for ringing it out. I hope it gets somewhere. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Now, this is such a Cleveland story, Lisa. Which stars are coming to the Christmas Story cast reunion in public hall later this year? Yeah, it looks like most of the major cast members will be coming. This is the 40th anniversary of 1983's classic, A Christmas Story. This will be November 10th and 12th at Public Auditorium, and it's part of the Greater Cleveland Film Commission's Behind the Camera events. So showing up, like I said, are all the big ones. Peter Billingsley, who played Ralphie, Zach Ward, who was Scott Farkas, Yano Anaya, Grover Dill, Ian Petrella, who played Randy, who was uh, Ralphie's little brother, and Scott Schwartz, who played Unfortunately, Melinda Dillon, you know, the mom, she died in January of this year. She was 83, but I would hope she would have come. That would have been awesome. Um, This is the first time they've been together in Cleveland at the same time since filming the movie. So this is a big thing for them. Um, The events include an expo with autographs and photo opportunities, a cast panel on Friday. They're going to talk about stories from filming A Christmas Story, and they're restarting starting, well, it's a new name, but it's called the Cleveland Christmas Run. It debuts November 11th. This continues the tradition of a Christmas Story 5K, 10K run that ran from 2013 to 2019. It's, it's, what's so interesting about this is the movie is not set in Cleveland, but it was mm-hmm. shot in Cleveland and it's Cleveland's own. We have the Christmas Story House, which is a actually very fun tourist attraction. And this, I bet this thing is mobbed. I, I bet people come from around the country to go to this. Well, I saw this great story uh, yesterday on WKYC. They interviewed Zach Ward, and he said some little four-year-old came up to him and said, you're Zach Ward. You played Scott Farkas. And he said he was so <laughs> amazed that a four-year-old knew who he was. Yeah, it's just a, it's a heartwarming one. We'll have to, well, I'm sure we'll be covering it in all its glory. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
All right, Laura, what's going on in Hudson? Someone burned a pride flag that was on a resident's porch. Yeah, apparently a um, state representative, his name's Casey Weinstein, he's a Democrat from Hudson, actually broke this when a constituent emailed him to share that the flag had been set on fire off his porch on early June 11th. And they replaced the flag. They will continue to fly during Pride Month. And he's an Air Force veteran who served seven dis- deployments. So obviously he was disgusted with this act. And so, so is all. So are all the public officials in Hudson. They're coming out completely saying oh, Hudson is a place that welcomes all differences and celebrates them. And a councilwoman actually says she will buy flags for anybody who wants to fly them in response to this. Hudson it seems like it's continuously in the culture wars. You had the wackadoo on the school board, remember, who was basically saying that fishing tents are places for prostitution. Uh, You had the the weird shutting down of a military veteran talking about the history of, uh, uh, that had some racism in it and and he was shut down in mid-speech. I don't know what it is with Hudson. It seems like it, it should be an enlightened community, but it has this level of intolerance that keeps putting it in the news. I don't know. I mean, it is. It's a it's a wealthy town. I don't know where it breaks down on the red and blue spectrum, but it's a small town with, you know, close knit communities and old. It's old. (laughs) Like it's, it has this great town square. And so I would think that there'd be more community conversations and, and you're right. I, I don't, I don't know why it is constantly in the news. I do know when there are Hudson stories in the news, people read them because they like, they like to see the dysfunction in an upper kind yeah. of echelon town. Uh, but this is this the city where John Brown is from. I mean, they have it's this true. this legacy of of being a righteous community, but in recent years, it's not. Well, isn't, it may not Hudson, have been a Hudson resident that did it. I mean, we don't know who did it. It probably very, was, but we don't point. know. Yeah, good point. Good is point, Hudson the place where the mayor said that ice shanties lead to prostitution? Well, when it yeah. was a, was it the, no? When the mayor is the school board president? I thought it was the mayor. Yeah. I think it was the mayor. There oh, was, was the, the school board thing that they weren't allowing these kids to use the writing prompts. Oh, right. And like, <laughs> right. Oh, oh that's right. Oh, man. I'm getting my Start culture listing. wars mixed up. I that's right. weird Hudson stories. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they've had this this mayor that, that said the incident is unacceptable act of hatred is Jeffrey Anzavino. And I haven't seen his name before. I'm like, that is a different mayor than the, the past mayor who got booted out after the last time we had big Hudson news. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Thursday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. And thanks to everybody who listens to Today in Ohio. 